You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Jamie Beck on the show with me. Jamie has an amazing new book. It's called The Happy Accidents. And what what a great, uh, heartwarming, comforting story this is. Um, I, I know that this is, this is going to be a must-read for so many people. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed the book and uh, excited to talk about it today. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, Jamie, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? (laughs) It's a little bit embarrassing, but I'll be honest. Um, So when I was a teenager, I loved watching soap operas. My friends and I would rush home after school to watch The Guiding Light, and I would constantly be aggravated at the way they would take storylines and be thinking to myself, they should have done this, they should have done that. And so I thought for a long time that I wanted to write for television or film. Um, But then my parents who are very practical people were not big fans of like a writing career. So I didn't do that for a very long time. (laughs) And then I got into writing once I was a stay-at-home mom for a while and once my kids were in school and I had a lot more free time. Then I was like, well, maybe I'll write a book. <laughs> so, so that's it. That's the story. I love that. And and <laughs> there's nothing to be embarrassed about at all. That's uh, that's a fantastic story. <laughs> um, so, Jamie, um, you know, after kind of you know, it, it's funny that that people have this sort of awakening one day that that they realize, you know, I am a storyteller. Now, now what do I do with this? gift you know do it do i write books do i you know collect family stories you know what what shape does that take um as you started growing older and and you know going through school and then finding your place in life and you know having family and paying bills and you know all of the life that gets in the way of your your grand dreams um when did writing come back around for you i i think you know like i said so as a young woman and as a single woman, I was a lawyer. I had my MBA and my law degree, which was my dad's insistence because he wanted me to have a secure future that wasn't reliant on someone else to take care of me. So I did that for about 10 years. And then, like I said, my husband and I started our family and I was fortunate enough to have the choice to step back from work and be here when the kids were little. And it was sort of during that time that I realized that I felt very underutilized mentally, (laughs) you know, like I was really busy all day taking care of kids, but mentally um, I just, there was a lot left on the table at the end of the day. And I fished around for a while uh, doing volunteer work in the schools and in the community. And I played around with getting my real estate license or an interior design degree. Like I had a lot of interests. And so I was playing around with things, but nothing ever felt quite right. And then it was you know, I was reading a lot during that time, too, because I did have a lot of free time. So as I was reading more, I was like, oh, you know, 
I, maybe this is what I could do. You know, maybe I always wanted to be a writer and I never, ever pursued it. Maybe now is the time. I have the time. Nobody's, you know, looking over my shoulder. It doesn't matter if I don't succeed or don't make money. Why not take that chance on myself now? And so I got very lucky. I know not everyone has all those opportunities that I, you know, I had a lot of opportunity put in my lap, but sure. it it did you know, give me the chance to pursue something that, you know, had always kind of been in the back of my mind as something that I, I thought I would like to do. I always, I didn't ever do fan fiction, in fact, like on the computer, but always, you know, in terms of watching shows and movies and even reading books, I would question choices. Why'd they have the character do that? You know, so um, I guess it was meant to be eventually. I don't know. So, Jamie, let me ask you, um, what was... Was there an an initial story idea that that was plaguing you? Um, you know, maybe uh, characters that just you know kind of decided to tag along in your life, and you you know eventually have to figure out who these characters are and what they're doing. Um, or was it the um, was it the idea of writing a story, and then you know you have to kind of dig out what that story is that you want to tell? What how did that begin for you? Was it was it a story that you knew you would tell or or was it just the 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 want to tell a story? Yeah, it was the latter. For me, it was the desire to try it. And I've always been sort of a romantic. I like stories that have romantic, you know, threads in them. And but I had young children at the time. So I the first manuscript I ever wrote is under my bed and no one will ever see it. But, um, <laughs> But it was sort of a YA genre blended romance sort of coming of age story. And um, I wrote it in secret. I didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell anybody because I thought, what if I don't finish? I don't want to have failed. I, you know, and so I, I told my husband and my mother when I got to about like when I knew I would finish it, when I was sort of in the back half and I really didn't know what I was doing. I was going just on instinct. And then once I finished it, then I started going to workshops, reading craft books, trying to figure out what I was supposed to have done. And I know that's a totally backwards way to do it. But for me, it was a very good way because it was all joy and I wasn't intimidated. I wasn't overwhelmed by craft jargon and rules and things, you know. Now, not having that information is one of the reasons why it's under the bed, but it was sort of like a practice, like jump in. Can I even tell a story that makes sense, has an arc, characters grow, you know, and so it got me excited. And then I joined writing organizations and, you know, then I got more involved and I picked a lane and went for it with a different manuscript. So it took me three manuscripts to get my agent, though. So, uh, you know those those instincts I think are are very um, uh, though it let me let me say it this way you know we tell writers that you know if you want to be a great writer you need to do two things you need to read a lot and you need to write a lot and you know reading other people's work um, will kind of let you know what story structure is about and there there you know there comes a point where either you have the instinct or you don't you know you may need to to polish it and and you know kind of whittle down the the rough edges when it's finished 
but but instinct is 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 kind of everything in in telling a story were were you surprised at the end of it that having no formal training not not uh you know being involved with other writers groups and and getting critiques from other people were, were you kind of surprised with yourself at the end of that first manuscript of you know i can tell a story this is something i can do it may not be my, uh, the the best representation of my work right now but but i can do it yeah i don't know if surprise i'm you know i i was raised by a, a father who um was a very ambitious person and a big dreamer and he raised my brother and me to always believe that anybody can do anything if they commit to doing it. And they might not succeed the first, second, third, fourth time, but really the difference between success and failure is just persistence. And so I, I think I'm never surprised because always in the back of my mind, that's my little mantra, like, you can do it, just keep going, you know, just keep sure. doing it. So I did think I could write it. I didn't. What has been the bigger surprise to me is that, you know, getting the agent, getting publishing contracts, and then actually having a, you know, successful reaching a lot of readers. That that I knew I could write the book and probably at the very least, you know, I could have self-published it and maybe sold a few hundred copies. Like I figured that would have been like exciting enough for me. You know, I just wanted to try to get something out there. Um, the bigger surprise has been that that I, it actually turned into a, a real career for me, which wasn't really my plan. Um, it wasn't not the plan, but it wasn't like, you know, I had young kids still. I was a mom primarily. So it it just took me by surprise how things sort of blew up a little bit after my second book came out. And um, and then I was on the treadmill, you know, meeting deadlines and and dealing with all. So I was like, uh oh, <laughs> now I'm working more than full time. Right, right. Um, you you said that first manuscript that you wrote is is under the bed where where it will remain, and lots of us have desk drawer novels or trunk novels or you know or under the bed novels or sitting on my hard drive novels, which is is probably more common today than than not. Um, what what was it that that led you to move on from that first manuscript and say, okay, well, maybe that one wasn't the, um, you know, wasn't the the one that that's gonna help me make it? And you know, I'm I'm always fascinated with how writers um, persist. And you know, if one manuscript doesn't work out. They just go start a new one and, you know, well, maybe this one will and then spend another six months to a year working on something that may or may not work. And and then, you know, if that one doesn't, they'll just go write a new one. Um, what was it that kept you pushing forward? I think just because I found the process itself so rewarding. I really, especially when you're not on a deadline and you can take your time and I really loved creating these worlds, creating these characters and having, you know, unlike in my real life where I have almost no control over anything or anyone in my stories, I had complete control over exactly who they were, exactly what they said and did and exactly the result or the consequence that happened. And it, it, I loved that process, you know, and like I said, before you're published, you really have time to play, to 
go down a certain thread and be, and then realize, oh, this isn't really working. And so you chuck three chapters and you're not worried because that deadline isn't, you know, looming over your head. And so it was a really joyful process. It was fun. And like I said, I was very fortunate and I didn't have a day job. So I did have like these chunks of time that were just mine. And I, I know I have such respect and awe for the majority of authors who have full-time day jobs and our mothers or fathers and, you know, taking care of older parents and just everything and still find the time to write. That to me is amazing. I always say I was very, very lucky that I had, I had the private time during, you know, the morning hours where I could dedicate myself to this without having to give up something else or something else suffering. So that really helped. Jamie, I've I've gotten to know quite a few writers who began their career uh, as as attorneys. Um, looking, you know, on that that career trajectory, you wouldn't think that that uh, necessarily spending time in the law would help you as a fiction writer. Um, but there there seem to be some some tools that you pick up along the way um, that that have that have helped. Um, other writers in the past. Do you can you draw a line from your time studying the law and practicing as an attorney that uh, that you reach back and 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 pull into your fiction writing now? Um, maybe it's research. Maybe it's uh, I, I don't know. Um, do, do you uh, do you credit that to 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 your craft at all? I I would in a couple of different ways, and so. A, you know, law school and lawyering is very logic driven, right? So I think when it comes to plotting and um, things like that, like I'm, I'm a very, you know, logical thinker. And so it's kind of easy for me to sequence things that make sense. So I don't have, you know, plot holes and things that fall apart. Definitely research is a big part of, you know, any well-told story and, Lawyers do a lot of research, so that's a very comfortable skill set for me. Um, lawyers tend to end up being decent writers because you're writing a lot, whether you're writing contracts or briefs, you know, and you learn to be very economical with your word choice. And you learn that word choice, the difference between the and a uh, or whatever in a contract can be a huge, huge legal difference. So you learn that word choice really matters. And I think that when it comes to storytelling, that's also really important. Uh, you know, I'm not a beautiful writer, like some writers, like um, a good friend of mine, Barbara O'Neill, she paints with words, you know, she's also a painter, but I mean, she writes like a poet, you know, she has beautiful words. I'm not that I'm a very uh, accessible, direct, frank kind of writer. So my style, my voice might not be for every reader, but that comes largely from my background too, as a lawyer, um, and how to get information out with the right words in the right way, hopefully. And so I think all of those things, um, it's not like I, oh, and then the other final thing is I, I did, I was a transactional lawyer, so I was not in the courtroom. I um, represented real estate developers and banks mostly, uh, sometimes little corporations and other deals, buying and selling businesses. But so I learned a lot about business and real estate and lending, you know, and, and money and stuff during those 10 years. And so a lot of times my stories, because I tell a lot of family stories and 
family dramas will revolve around a family owned business or things that I know a lot about from my old career and that I can kind of use the law and how you know corporations are structured and the kind of fights that people can get into very realistically to set up genuine external conflict in a story that's very real um, and it happens out there all the time you know so that has helped me a lot of times plot as well um so yeah i would say my old career definitely has helped me a lot that was a long answer sorry hey, I went <laughs> no that was a perfect answer that was a perfect answer you have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com uh, Jamie, if someone is not familiar with your work, um, we've talked about your influences some and and uh, kind of some of your ideas about uh, about stories, but if if someone, um, you know, said, what, what is a Jamie Beck book? You know, if I pick up one of your books, what can I expect? What kind of storyteller would you label yourself as? I think all of my books are character driven stories and they're mostly about figuring out how to live a more authentic life. I started writing romance novels and I have since switched into women's fiction. But all along, all of my stories have often dealt, they're relationship-based stories. Even the romances also tend to have family dynamics going on, big subplots, you know, friendship, rifts, uh, trauma. I bring in things like infertility and alcoholism and teenage anxiety and mental illness. And like, I try to address, I try to make the stories very realistic so that People who are out there may be dealing with some of those issues or some of those family crises and struggles might find hope in the way my characters are able to work through those issues and come out the other side feeling stronger and and either getting over the thing that hurt them if they can't resolve it, that they learn how to accept it and move on or if they find a way to resolve it and move forward. So that's basically all my books to date are some version of that. Some are much more romantic than others, but they all deal with relationships and, and how to, how to overcome crises in your life and move forward authentically. Your, your new book, the happy accidents uh, is a standalone book and you have written 
um, a number of series, the St. James uh, novel series, the Sterling Canyon uh, series, the Cabot series, the uh, Sanctuary Sound series, yeah. uh, the Potomac Point series, and, and now we have Happy Accents, which uh, which is a standalone novel. Um, how do you start thinking when you're when a new project, when it's that time of the year to to start something new and and you're staring at the blank page, you know, your word processor or whatever your process is. And uh, do you know from the beginning, OK, I, I need to revisit characters and places that I've written about before because I have another situation to put these people in uh, or, um, you know, that, that you start thinking about new new characters um you know all together with with new scenarios and new things to put them through um how do you know when it's going to be the continuation of a series that you've already begun or this is a a brand new story my preference would always be to do standalones but in the romance world which is where i started those readers very greatly favor series so my publisher would want me to create you know, a three book series each time. So each time we'd go back to like proposal stage, I'd create a sort of three book, a series arc for, so it'd be, you know, brothers and sisters or a set of three friends. Um, and so each one of those people would get their own individual story, but there would also be a series arc over that. Um, so in the St. James, it was a family secret in the Sanctuary Sound there was a friendship rift that had to be mended over three books and, you know, things like that. When I got into women's fiction, which the Potomac Point books are, I would have, they are really standalone books, but because my publisher technically is still a romance publisher, so they wanted, they are comfortable with series. So the only thing those books have in common is that they're all set in the same location, but they actually read as the, the people are disconnected. There's very little I have like little background characters show up again, but there's not really, because I, those stories were stories I really wanted to talk about and tell, but they really didn't have any crossover. And I didn't want to be constrained by something I wrote in one book and then have to live with it when I got ready to write, you know, a different book. So, um, so from now on, I will probably only write standalones because the women's fiction market is not a series reading market. And, um, I think, you know, my publisher has learned that now, too, that that didn't work out exactly the way that they had hoped it would. So um, I think I will have the, the freedom now to write standalone. I don't a series are hard because you do get locked in, you know, with each book in that series, more and more facts and backstory become cemented. And then you might come up with this great twist or this great idea in your third book. And you're like, oh, I can't do that because, you know, this happened back, you know, and it's already out there. So. I prefer not to have that hanging over me. So, Jamie, for the happy accidents, what was that moment of inspiration uh, that that started this book for you? What what was what were you thinking about that that got the wheels turning? Honestly, I wish I could remember. You know, you write these books like I wrote this book. Almost, I started this book almost two years ago, and and now I've already written and turned in the book that will come out next year, and I'm starting to write the one that's due in July. <laughs> the actual inspiration I I have plotting partners and we go away three times a year um, for like a long weekend and we help each other plot next stories and I feel like you know on the drive up to Vermont which is where we meet I 
kind of got this idea about playing around with like, you know, people win the lottery and everyone thinks, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? But is that the most important thing? You know, like I sort of started like thinking down that, that like, what would be the worst thing that could happen to someone who won the lottery, you know, to prove that money isn't everything. And so that's kind of where the, oh, wait, that's, that's the wrong story. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about what I'm writing now. (laughs) (laughs) I apologize. I'm, I'm, uh, I got myself confused. This happy accidents. All right. So this was the book I wrote during the pandemic and um, like the beginning of the lockdown. And I wanted to write, most of my books are pretty angsty. This one is not. And that was a very intentional choice because I, you know, the world felt like it was on fire. We were in, you know, the election was heating up and the pandemic was, you know, scary and no one knew what was happening. And, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like so many things happened during the, you know, seven months or so that I wrote this story. And I just felt that I could not, I had no gas in the tank to go into a deep angsty story because you know, my house was suddenly full. My kids were back from college and and my son was still in high school. My, my husband was working from home. The house was filled with like, you know, everyone was on edge. I just, I, I'm like, I need something that's lighter and a little bit fun. And my husband lo- loved that movie, The Hangover. So I kind of, I think I kind of did a little riff on that, like, but a girl's version without all the you know, extremism of that movie. (laughs) So I really was aiming to do something different from my normal books, um, except to the extent that it's still based on, you know, the friendship among these three women, the family dynamic of the two sisters and their parents, and then all three women sort of having a new obstacle to overcome and figure out how to live their life happier. And um, so that was that. That was sort of, it was really driven by the pandemic to kind of go light and find something a little bit more playful. You know, none none of these women's things are the end of the world. You know, no one's got cancer. No one's dealing with a chronic, you know, really, they're all recoverable. But right. they're important to them at that point in their life, so... So from from coming up with an idea um, like that to actually casting the book and then, you know, finding these people that feel real and that we can follow along on their happy accidents. Um, um, how do you begin, you know, then plugging in characters to this, uh, you know, you know, like like Jess Clark, like where did she come from? And, and Chloe, like where? um you know, how do, how do you start then translating uh, a story idea to to people that, that we can then follow along on their exploits? Well, for this story, Jess was the first character that I that I kind of came to mind and the impetus for the story. And of course, she's the larger than life character. She's the spontaneous one. She's the rebel um, in her family. She's the artist. And um and actually, in my earliest draft, she was much more flamboyant than she is. You know, editors and stuff have a way of trying to tame you and make, you know, characters more either relatable or palatable or whatever. So she was my original character. I wanted to write someone flamboyant and fun and very different from me. And um, and then, of course, 
when I created her sister, I wanted to make the opposite because then, you know, micro tension and things you have to think about in terms of giving dr little drivers to stories and scenes, you know, obviously when you have opposites, just like an opposites attract romance, opposites sisters, you know, you're going to have those little moments of friction where they love each other, but they really don't understand each other. You know, they really don't see eye to eye on how to do things or live life or how they view their parents and their childhood or anything. So um, Liz was kind of easy to create because I basically was trying to make her as different from Jess as I possibly could. And then Chloe was my, she was like my rudder or whatever. She was the equalizer, right? She's, she's not as wealthy as those sisters. She's not famous like Liz. She's not single like those women both were at this point in the story. She's a mom. She's a caretaker. She's a nurturer. And she's a person who doesn't like conflict, whereas the other two are more comfortable, you know, saying what they want or being more direct. And Chloe's, uh, you know, more of a negotiator and, and a pleaser. So I knew Chloe would be very relatable to a lot of women readers because a lot of women are groomed to be like Chloe. You know, we grew up being told, like, cooperate, accommodate, you know, all of that. So I but that's part of Chloe's arc then is to learn it's nice to cooperate when you can. It's nice to accommodate when it's comfortable, but you shouldn't default to that and always give up what is important to you to make everybody else happy first. So that was Chloe's arc was to, you know, to grow in that way. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the book is a little bit about not oh, hit you over the head with it, but hopefully there's a little hints of, you know, just sort of, you know, feminism. And I have a daughter now who's turning 21. And, you know, I'm glad that the world is changing a little bit and, and that she's going to go into a different workplace than I went into in 1991. And she won't have to put up with the same kinds of things. And she'll feel more free to assert herself in a way that was harder. Um, and this book is sort of tilting into that a little bit, I think, hopefully. The Happy Accidents is available everywhere now. Um, you can go grab it today when you're hearing this. There's links to it in the show notes where you can grab it in uh, Kindle edition or hold the paper in your hand. However you like to read books, you can grab it today. Um, Jamie, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Um, well, I have a website, jamiebeck.com. And uh, also on Amazon, you can always go to the author page and find all the books. Um, and I'm on Facebook under Jamie Beck Books and on Instagram under writer Jamie Beck. Excellent. We'll put links to all those places in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. The Happy Accidents is out uh, everywhere now. Uh, also an audio book. Um, Jamie, uh, have you listened to the audio book? I don't listen to them. I, I'll sometimes just play the little sample just to hear the voices, but it's really hard. And I'm sure you know this from writing, you know, you create these characters, you live with them for months and months, you hear them in your head and their tone, their inflection, the way they deliver a line. And when an actor gets involved and interprets things, sometimes their interpretation and the way they deliver the line, not only doesn't sound anything like you had in your head, but also can actually change sort of the meaning you know it can sound yeah. sarcastic when it wasn't meant to or it can sound angry when it was supposed to be sort of a sarcastic joke you know and um 
So when I hear that, it makes me very tense because it's like, oh, that's a misinterpretation. So I, I, I have never listened to an entire audiobook of mine, but I also don't really listen to audiobooks unless they're nonfiction, um, more like listening to a good lecture. You know what I mean? Right. So, um, yeah, I just think I'm not an audiobook person. <laughs> <laughs> well, however you like uh, to read, you can grab it in whatever format. Uh, suits you best the happy accidents available everywhere now jamie thank you so much for taking time to come on the show it was lovely talking to you and i am very much appreciate being introduced to your audience now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from richard glebe's the jason crane series mather steepled his hands you asked to join us once hedwick leaned forward eagerly the appointed does that appeal yes do you even know what we do? My grandmother used to say that you control the world. That's not far off. But why? To what end? I don't know. Power? Pour me a bourbon. Mather reached into his briefcase and produced a file folder. I want to tell you one story. Have you ever heard of Centralia, Pennsylvania? No. He produced a photo for Hedwig's inspection. Spring of 1962. A pretty little town, wasn't it? Whitewash and ticky-tacky, pastel housewives and perfect lawns. A mining community, mostly. Coal. He turned over a second photo. A lovely young woman. There was a single witch in Centralia named Anna Lively. Anna had a green thumb. She could make her garden grow whisper to a flower and send it shooting from the ground like that. Just lovely. But she was discovered. That spring, a boy named Bobby Avery received a Bell and Howell Zoomatic movie camera for his 11th birthday. Bobby amused himself by filming his neighbors, sometimes without their knowledge, through windows and over garden fences. Twelve seconds of film. Just a girl and her garden patch and one swiftly blooming rose. It killed the town. Bobby showed it to his friends. Children believe readily. Bobby was the first to die. Parents looked into it, watched the film themselves, and they began to die. Anna disappeared. Perhaps they attacked her. Perhaps she escaped. But even in her absence, knowledge of a true witch was running wild through the population as if Anna had beckoned it herself to grow verdant and spread. The great curse had killed 64 Centralians by the 1st of June. The footage was offered to a national news organization. That was the precipice. It might have been shown in prime time, between Leave It to Beaver and My Three Sons. We came very close to another worldwide calamity, but we were fortunate. One of our own was in place at the network. He alerted his superiors, and they ended the situation. Do you know how? I'm afraid to ask. Mather laid down another photo. This is Centralia today. It was an aerial view of a forest. Endless trees and underbrush cut through by lanes of pavement. Just a maze of cracking asphalt like the foundations of Sodom, ripped bare by the wrath of God. Only a cemetery remained, on a hill overlooking the former town. 
A white marble angel stood among the graves, grieving for the ruins below. Like Lot's wife, turned to salt. You destroyed the whole town? Not I. This was well before my time. But, yes. Just as you'd cauterize a wound to stop a patient from bleeding to death. We blamed it on an uncontrollable mine fire, deep below the earth. We actually set the coal burning, in case someone investigated. It burns today. Touch any of those streets and you'll find them hot, the asphalt melting as if the town sat just above perdition. It's not something we're proud of, but it was necessary. To save the world. Centralia, Pennsylvania, and everyone who'd seen that film, had to be sacrificed. Mather collected the photos. So, that is why the appointed exist, and that is what we do. Still want to join? <laughs>